Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. This is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. And tonight's guest is Scott Francis. And Scott, I found through a couple of indirect ways, but welcome, Scott. Thank you, Tony, for having me. And how are you doing today? Truly grateful and happy. How are you today, Tony? That's good. I'm I'm already impressed with how well you've handled sobriety and how you're dealing with it, you know, so... I know you've got a story to tell, and we know we know you're you're doing a lot of other things now that you're sober. Uh, but can you give us a little bit of history, like uh, where'd you grow up, and when did you start with alcohol or drugs and so forth? Yeah, I was born in New Bedford. Uh, that's where I grew up. That's where my family's from. I'm Portuguese and Irish, and uh, I guess I, I had been around alcohol. You know, my family used alcohol. I can remember as a kid uh, being asked to get a beer for my dad, and uh, you know, as part of the reward system, I could open it and take a sip. And then uh, when I was probably in the ninth grade, uh, not ninth grade, the fourth grade, a friend of mine's father had a bar in his in his basement. And I remember exploring with alcohol then and, and we didn't know what we were doing. And then I guess through uh, junior high, you know, um, a little bit of drinking and in high school, it, uh, it progressed to being able to, uh, I stayed at a friend's house who didn't have much adult supervision. And we'd go out Friday and Saturday night. This uh, classmate of mine, when I was a sophomore, she uh, would throw parties. And there would be somebody there to buy alcohol. And uh, we'd, you know, uh, we'd consume as much alcohol as we could on a Friday and Saturday night. And it was a lot of fun until, you know, um, things you know, progressed to a point where it led to addiction. When you drank back in the 11th grade, did you actually drink to get drunk? Yeah. And it was, um, I guess, looking back on it, uh, I did it for a few reasons. Um, what I didn't realize at the time that I was dealing with fear, you know, uh, and feeling a little bit less than, not as self-confident. Um, and it was a way of connecting with other people. And when I had alcohol in my system, uh, that fear went away. And it was, I guess, also out of uh, curiosity, I was always told I couldn't drink. You know, it was something I was told not to do. But yet here I saw all the adults around me doing it, you know. So it was something I wanted to try. And and also with all the uh, all the advertising on TV, you know, it just it became something I aspired to do. And uh, I thought that was the way to have fun. So originally it was around, I guess, connecting and also uh, dealing with, I guess, trying to figure out my own path in life or just like feel known to insecurities and wanted to be part of because I went to uh, Fairhaven High School and I came in there as a 10th grader and I didn't know people at that town because I was living in a different town a small town called the Cushionet where they make uh, Titleist golf balls and it was a way yeah. of fitting in with other kids and so I uh, did that through high school and it was always to try to drink as much as you could because it was like a macho thing to how, how much alcohol you could drink I mean it is not something uh, I'm proud of, but it was what happened. So did you play any sports? Yes. And th- luckily, um, that was a big part of, of my life. Uh, growing up, I played uh, uh, baseball, basketball. And uh, then when I got to high school, uh, junior high, I played soccer on the team. And uh, we started our own soccer team. And I was a 11th grader in, in Fahaven High. And I played on the basketball team. And it was really, basketball was really big in Fairhaven. Um, and we had some really good teams and had a lot of success. And it was something I would practice like almost daily. It was a, a big part of my life. And unfortunately, I wasn't good enough to play in college. But, you know, we had a lot of success in high school, won some league championships and actually played for the state championship where we lost. But it was um, it was a lot of fun. And Oh, yeah. It's good. It was, good history. Good, good memorable yeah. thing to look back on, you know. When, when it was happening, you didn't probably know that it was going to be the, one of the best days of your life, you know, that, yeah. that what you were doing, you know, so you have to get old before you can appreciate it sometimes. Um, so you graduated. So when did alcohol take more control 
so that you didn't do it. You did everything while you were under the influence. And I got to say, Tony, <clears throat> I ignored some of the jackpots along the way. You know, when I was uh, a junior in high school, we went up to New Hampshire and uh, with, uh, with a few of my buddies from high school and somebody stole a dog and uh, we ended up, you know, they borrowed a dog from, uh, from the local store and we ended up getting in trouble. But like, I didn't look at that as a jackpot. I thought it was bad luck, you know? Then I had another time where uh, I guess <clears throat> I had, uh, I was driving a car and uh, I had a couple beers and I just did something stupid and uh, I hit the tail end of my uh, car into a pole at the beach. So like I ignored the warning signs of that. This could be a problem. And it wasn't until I'd say I was able to go to college and I think that's where my addiction began because I can remember really uh, not having, I wasn't playing sports, which was a big part of my identity. And so I had a lot of that other time and as a way of fitting in with other kids, you know, I started drinking alcohol and a, a buddy of mine who I had played basketball with transferred to the college. So he was a sophomore, I was a, a freshman and we started spending a lot of time together and I was shocked to learn that he smoked marijuana every day. I just couldn't believe that somebody could smoke marijuana every day. But, you know, by the end of my freshman year, can you guess what I was doing, Tony? Yeah, smoking marijuana. Smoking marijuana did, every day. Did, did you, know? you even smoke cigarettes? No, uh, and I never would have started smoking cigarettes. Um, however, in 1995, I got sectioned for uh, what they call a Section 12. Um, and they were... Uh, they weren't passing out weed, but they were passing out cigarettes at this hospital in uh, Pocasset in Cape Cod. So I figured, well, I'll try smoking cigarettes because uh, maybe it'll be like smoking marijuana. Because at that point, I was uh, addicted. To, I was addicted to marijuana, and I was drinking alcohol. I was a binge drinker, but probably up to drinking four, five to six days a week. You know, um, so that was where I picked up my first cigarette, being. Uh, at a hospital to try to get some mental health treatment. It's kind of kind of bizarre that a hospital would give out cigarettes. Well, especially I believe, knowing what we know today, because four hundred thousand people a year die from tobacco-related illness. And I don't think it was by accident because I believe that the hospitals were given these cigarettes as a way for the tobacco companies to develop new consumers. You know, possibly. Um, yeah. And I got to tell you, um, that was probably my hottest addiction to end because it was just insidious. It was ingrained with all these different habits. You talk about a habit loop after you have a meal, you get in a car. There's so many and it's social. It's just there's so many ways that it was ingrained oh, yeah. that it was. Uh, fortunately, I was able to uh, to stop smoking cigarettes after a couple of different attempts. Um, and I haven't had a cigarette since uh, March of 2000. And six. Well, you're done with that. There's no question about that. <laughs> you're done with that. So tell me what's a section 12. Okay. You might be familiar with section 35. I am. Um, where people get committed to, uh, because their, their, their addiction is in danger to themselves. Like they're, if they don't right. get some help, they can die. So you can get a uh, section 35. You can be, if you're a female, you can be, uh, put in a program that's run by the Department of Mental Health. However, if you're a male, uh, you're being put in a program that's run by the Department of Corrections and you're treated like a criminal. Um, whereas Section 12, and by the way, Moore, who I work for, is working to change that, that let's get Section 35 out from underneath the Department of Corrections and under people who know about treatment and recovery, you know, not people who know about incarceration so but anyways that's a sidebar section uh section 12 is they deem a person is either a danger to themselves or a danger to others and back in 1995 that meant a person can be um, put into forced treatment for a period of 10 days and if a person is sectioned on a friday night they don't count friday night they don't count saturday they don't count sunday but the sectioning begins on Monday. And, and that's what happened to me. I got sectioned on a Friday night when I was actually involved with uh, in a master's level program to get a master's degree to become a special ed teacher. 
and it was uh, extremely traumatic. Yeah, I was going to say, does um to get? I know Section Thirty Five has to be a family relative or a chief of police or someone who can prove to the judge that you're definitely out of control. So who does the sectioning on the Section Twelve? Well, a psychiatrist has to be the one to sign sign off, but uh, anybody can initiate it. In my case, it was my parents initiated, it and uh, they had a town police officer pick me up and former a, a guy who was a former coach I played with his uh his brother in Little League Baseball and uh Mark gave me the choice of either coming the easy way or the hard way to the hospital and I tried to bargain my way out of it. I said I'll be happy to go tomorrow. I mean I got class in a few hours. But uh I ended up being sectioned that night. So Wow. And and what what did you get out of it? Well, that's a great question, Tony. I got to tell you, it was, it turned out to be a good thing, but it was the most horrific experience that ever happened to me because I really, I guess it hit me on many different levels. You know, um, I, I had plans that night to go to a basketball game between uh, Brockton High School and New Bedford High School, which is a huge basketball game in the state tournament. And I was going to, I was mentoring, um, one of the uh, kids on the team, the Brockton team. And uh, he was a former, I coached high school soccer and he was a former player of mine. And so uh, I really felt bad about letting this boy down that I couldn't be there to take him out after the, you know, um, so that was really upsetting. And then also it was very difficult to, uh, I had to drop out of that master's level program. So initially I got a lot of, I guess it would be trauma out of it. Um, I had to deal with, uh, a lot of anger, feelings of betrayal. But I guess what I ended up getting out of it in the end was the ability to forgive and also to uh, to realize that there are other ways of living my life. Because honestly, at that time, um, I was really mad at a lot of people. Okay, And so it allowed me then to have the ability to take a look at this. Like I had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and... Uh, and it allowed me to say to myself, well, what if I don't have bipolar disorder and uh, I go through all this treatment, right? What's the big deal, you know? Yeah. However, if I do have bipolar disorder and I am not treating it, you know, what is the possible risk to that? And uh, I realized that I'd be better off accepting the treatment even though I don't have to accept the diagnosis of bipolar disorder, I can accept that they offered me uh, therapy, had to, you know, and also they prescribed medication. So I said, all right, I will accept the treatment. And, uh, and then this way, because what if I don't have it? What if I have it and I'm in what they can't, they told me I either, I can say I have it or I can say I don't have it. And uh, if I say it, I'd be in denial. Like, I got taken to see a psychiatrist and within like five minutes of meeting me, he diagnosed me with bipolar disorder. So I remember asking the doctor, doctor, how sure are you that I have bipolar disorder? And he said, well, I'm 99.9% .9 sure. I said, God, you had me worried because I'm hundred percent. I don't have it. And I left, you know, however, I came to believe that, uh, you know, I, it was important for me, to accept the help that was offered. So I went into therapy and I, I did a bunch of stuff I didn't want to do. You know, I even had a, a therapist, Richard, who was uh, really good. He was very encouraging, very validating. And he, he got me to take a look at addiction because at that time, nobody had really had me, asked me any questions about my addiction, about my drug use. Can you believe this, Tony? Not one person asking me how much alcohol, marijuana, and other drugs am I using? You know, so Richard finally, you know, encouraged me to take a look at this, like asked me uh, about doing some controlled drinking. And then he asked me the question, what are you going to replace alcohol and other drugs with? Any idea what I said, Tony? Marijuana. Hey, good one. That, I, <laughs> I, I, good one. I did. I, you know, I was thinking it. I just said nothing because I'm not giving them up. And so in essence, you're correct, Tony. Marijuana. However, that question, it was a brilliant question 
it took me 11 years for that question to be to be popped to, to for me to revisit that question you know i became uh in 2006 i or in 2005 i applied for a job as a as a sort of as a peer specialist working for a pac team the program for assertive community treatment which is funded by the department of mental health down in new bedford they have like them all over the state and i managed to land the job and they sent me to a training called the certified peer specialist training and it was at that training where I began to take a look at my life. Uh, and I don't know if you ever heard of this pathway called RAP, Tony, Wellness Recovery Action Plan. Have you ever heard about that? No. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm going to hear about it now. Only if you want to. I do. <laughs> All right. Well, this was developed by Mary Ellen Copeland. And uh, in this, it's about hope, personal responsibility, education, support, and self-advocacy. And... Uh, it helped me to take a look at, you know, what am I like when I'm well? What am I like when I'm unwell? And like, more importantly for me, it was what are the stresses to me being unwell? And that every single time there was, whether it was a hospitalization, whether it was being fired from a job, whether it was not having a place to live, you know, whether it was getting arrested, the common denominator, you can probably guess it, substance use, you know? So that really, and that question that uh, Richard had asked me, what am I going to replace alcohol and other drugs with? I can replace it with wellness and having a positive impact on the lives of other people. So that was he what helped me, I guess. Uh, when you asked me, what did I get out of the sectioning? Okay. It's a long yeah. answer, but it's a long process. So in yes, essence, it, is. it led I, me to that wellness. Well, yeah. I, I've spoken on the other side to section 35 um, guys and, uh, I, you know, I basically would suggest to them, say, you're going to be here from 30 to 90 days. This is a good time to reflect. You know, you're in your cell, reflect, go out and take a walk in the yard, you know, and do a meditation walk and take this nice and slow and reflect about your life and where do you, where do you want to be in five years or 10 years? And I'd always ask him, do you want to be in an urn on your mother's mantle? Uh, every time she walks by, she cries. Or do you want to be at Fenway Park? having a Coke and a hot dog, you know, you, you get to pick, you know, you're the, you're the one, you're the one who's writing your own autobiography, you know, so you, you get to pick that, you know, and yeah, you're going to have to work at it. It's not going to come easy. You're going to have to work at it. And how about you? Did you find going sober? How did, how did you cope with that? Well, I was very fortunate. Um, when I started making this plan for this wellness plan, we take a look at supports. And uh, in that certified peer specialist training, I had about a dozen people who were in a long-term addiction recovery. And, uh, you know, I developed some pretty close relationships to them. I remember this one person, James E., he had like 13 years of uh, recovery from uh, alcohol and other drugs. And so I, um, I turned to him and, and, and really had some wonderful conversations about how he was coping. And he was a person who uh, went to N.A., in AA. And, uh, you know, so I said, well, you know what, it's working for James and it's working for other people. Let me give it a shot. So, uh, I, uh, went to my first AA meeting on, um, October 6, 2006. And I heard some really, uh, incredible things there. So having that support, like I was able to, uh, join a group and I went to, uh, 90 meetings in 90 days started going out in commitments but like in the past when i tried to stop my um you know when richard had asked me these questions about control drinking and tried to really take a look at my substance use and i tried to do it on my own i couldn't do it you know i always went back to it and i just i didn't have the tools i didn't have the support so fortunately with the support i received the aa and also in uh through the, the, my peers who are in uh, also in mental health recovery, and I guess would be dual recovery. Um, it allowed me to uh, to put together some time. And I'm, I mean, just truly grateful. And also I'm a very spiritual person. So that, um, you know, I have a person who has done a lot of prayer. And, and now in my repertoire, I uh, use a lot of meditation and exercise. So I've been fortunate to have the people in my life to have resources uh, to have jobs and you know since uh, i've developed this wellness plan i haven't had to be sectioned against my will 
haven't had to lose a job. And, um, and now I'm a person in uh, my family that people come to when times are hard. Instead of me being the black sheep of the family, I'm a person that uh, they call when there's a crisis, you know? A shining star. So I don't know much- about that, but <laughs> I'm no longer the black sheep, so I'll settle for that. Yeah. So when you were going 90, 90 meetings in 90 days, um, you, did you keep a job during that time or was this? I was blessed um, to have that to have that job as a peer specialist, and uh, and actually part of my work. Can you believe this? I'd be taken to people to meetings, you know. And I actually had uh, this one person who I was, I was being a paid peer specialist to work with people in mental health recovery and addiction recovery, you know. And one of the guys had like eighteen years of uh, sobriety, and like. And it was really increased mutuality. Like, so even though I was getting paid to be there, I was able to, to learn from this gentleman. And uh, I remember one time him and I went to a meeting and nobody showed up. We were out and evidently we went on the wrong night to the wrong place. But him and I sat in the car and we talked and he shared his recovery story. And like at the time, I might have had like, I don't know, 20 something days and I shared my recovery story. And so... Well, I, it was, uh, I was very fortunate to be able to be, maintain my employment and, uh, and, and I guess, de- enhance my recovery and develop that, what we call recovery capital. Um, so I was very, very lucky. So um, recovery capital, I think I know what that means, but give me a definition of that. Well, it, to me, it's about like, Internal resources, external resources, like um, it can be for like, I know where meetings are, you know, like I have supports in my life. Um, I can have, uh, you know, put it this way, this Zoom, this this computer, the electricity, being able to access support is all recovery capital. Um, like also internal stuff, like the challenges I've been through, like all that adversity, it, it bu- I can build strength from adversity. So it can be a... Uh, Internal stuff, like, and, and the things we know, it can be people, places, and things. It's uh, it's a whole bunch of stuff. And then the more we have of recovery capital, it can build our self-efficacy. It can uh, increase our support system, and it can allow us to uh, access our hopes and dreams. So this company you represent now, MOAR, M-O-A-R, uh, stands for what? Massachusetts Organization for Addiction Recovery. And uh, can I share with you our mission? Sure, please. I want to hear it. (laughs) Okay. Our mission is to organize recovering individuals, families, and friends into a collective voice to educate the public about the value of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. And we have uh, a beautiful, not only a beautiful mission statement, but I love our vision, Tony. I love our vision is to, we envision society where addiction is treated as a significant public health issue in that recovery from alcohol and other addictions is seen as valuable to all our communities. I like it. Now, do you actually have a, a facility or is this a, uh, like a recovery for facility where they, you take people to, to be part of it? Well, it's a great question, Tony. We we do operate in all realms like prevention, you know, treatment, recovery, harm reduction. Um, we do a lot of advocacy work, work in the communities, but we're not a treatment provider. Like we're not, people aren't going to go to us um, for inpatient treatment. However, we do offer recovery coaching services where people can come to our office and uh, we have an office in Boston, you know, so we have recovery coaches that work with people. So we could provide, I guess, services that way, but we also offer services in the community. Uh, we have events in the community. We have uh, uh, a program called Areas, Addiction, Recovery, Education, Access, Services. And we have different areas groups um, and different all throughout the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So every region uh, has an areas group and People can get peer support. They can learn about housing issues, how to manage a quarry. They can uh, learn how to, uh, you know, to overcome mental health challenges and, and different supports. And there's uh, 13 different units that offer 
um, support the people in recovery or even anybody. You don't have to be a person in recovery to be a part of our organization. You know, anybody can get get support through uh, areas or come to any of our events because we're doing advocacy work and uh, we also offer trainings in the community and we do, uh, we're part of coalitions. Uh, I'd like to give a, a plug for the Natick 180 Coalition that I'm working with in the Metro West. And also, oh, I was at the Recovery Connection today and I told them uh, I was going to be doing this interview and they're like, please give us a shout out. So giving a shout out to the Recovery Connection in Marlboro. And uh, we work with all the different recovery centers that uh, BSAS, the Bureau of Substance Addiction Services, uh, funds. I think they're up to 39 different recovery centers. So we work with the recovery communities and uh, we support multiple pathways of recovery. And it's just a wonderful organization that has just incredible people. And I'm so truly grateful to have been working here since uh, January 1st, uh, 2020. And and how does the company make money to sustain itself? Well, that's a great question. We uh, have funding through the Bureau of Substance Addiction Services, which is funded by the Department of Public Health. And okay. then we have some smaller grants too, as well. But that's so you're you're, you're an employee of the Department of Public Health. I'm mean, I'm part of uh, Bay State Community Services, which is our parent yeah. company, which is another excellent company. Uh, Doris Cox is the CEO and executive director. She's fantastic. Oh, and also. I didn't put in a plug for Marianne Frangoulis. I found her. Her and uh, Leroy Kelly founded this company of Moore in 1991. And Marianne's our executive director. And she is just absolutely incredible. She's been, uh, she's respected by so, respected, loved, and liked by so many people. And she's been a, a tireless advocate. So uh, I had to mention Marianne. Oh, thank you. That's, uh, I think I've heard of her. So she's pretty active in a lot of places, right? Without a doubt, uh, she's uh, she's uh, just incredible work. She's done a lot of work with all the with uh, so many different areas uh, of our of our state and uh, all these different projects. Whether it's the MCAS Massachusetts Co uh, Massachusetts Coalition of Addiction Counselors, you know, or uh, doing work to uh, with the in the legislatures to get uh, different. Um, legislation through like uh i know she really was a spearhead it was part of the safe mass to try to get alcohol advertising out of public spaces you know because that's something that's really i would like to see less alcohol advertising in in the world you know um because i think we don't need to be you know advertising a product that kills people so much no. but uh you know more has done stuff to try to be part of that that uh mission to try to you know get so people can't advertise in public spaces for uh, alcohol and other drugs. We used to have a, a, a law on, on hard liquor that you couldn't advertise like on billboards or on TV. And now I see they're, they're advertising whiskey on TV. And it's like, when, when did that change? Do you have any idea? I mean, it's like all of a sudden it was there one day, you know? Um, and I was I was surprised, really shocked to see Irish whiskey on television. You know, oh. it was like Royal Royale and all this other stuff that they advertise. And um, I mean, beer has been around since Prohibition as far as being advertised. But they things they couldn't advertise anything that had more than ten percent alcohol. As if as if that made a difference. You just had to drink half a dozen instead of one. You know, get the same effect. You know, so. Um, now, did you ever do opioids or anything in that area? I did, you know, um, and I too um, got my first script because of an injury, you know. Um, That's the usual playing way. Playing sports, you know, yeah. and and then I saw opioids through other means, you know. I uh, they were readily available, and uh, so in fact, I actually was part of that lawsuit against the Sacklers because. Uh, you know, as a result of it, you know, I did end up losing a job and it caused a lot of uh, problems for me in my life. I, I wish I had never taken that. I wish I had known, um, you know, but it's on the Sacklers who knew what they were doing. Um, you know, they didn't, they weren't trying to help people. They're trying to make money. So. Oh, yeah. They were, they were over exaggerating the, the fact that the opioids were non addictive. That was a big thing. And they put sexy salespeople either 
women for the male doctors and men for the female doctors to kind of encourage them to, you know, earn a trip down to the Caribbean by writing the most scripts and the variety of things that they pulled off. Uh, so you never received any money because no. um, that the lawsuit for people aren't familiar. The Sacklers formed, they filed bankruptcy for Purdue Pharma, which was the name of their factory or their company that produces opioids. None of their personal wealth was at risk. And we estimate their personal wealth, especially now with the stock market putting up to 38,000 points as of yesterday, their, their personal wealth is probably around 15 billion and with a B. And, and the bankruptcy got canceled pretty much because the, the uh, bankruptcy judge gave them immunity from their personal wealth for filing bankruptcy and agreeing to give $5 billion, you know, out to the public. But the, they, they wanted to pay it off over 18 years. When you look at the 18 years factor, if you, if you get 40 grand or 20 grand every 18 years, it's like getting a check for $1,500 a year. You know, that's nothing for the amount of people that died. A parent getting a check for even 40,000 for a life. Are you kidding? You know, so uh, it's going to go back. It's going to go to the Supreme Court, but it's going to go back so that we can sue them all over again. And it'll go on for a long time. But you're a young guy. You hang in there. You'll get some money. That's, you know. Um, yeah. So so when you go out on the road, um, how do you know where you're headed to find these people that you offer your services to? How do, where do you where do you go? I mean, you you could go to AA meetings, but that's not that's not cool, I would assume. Well, I do go to AA meetings, but uh, no, but I mean, you can't purpose. pick up clients there, yeah, yeah, you know. No. And I, I don't do direct service. Like we get a lot of uh, the the recovery coaching. We get referrals from uh, ATR, the access to treatment. You know, where people who are um, either coming out of incarceration or who are uh, lacking housing who can uh, can receive recovery coaching services, and there are some other qualifiers to. Uh, to be able to get services through ATR. So we get a lot of that. Is, it, is this a one-on-one -on -one approach? That's for the recovery coaching. But we also do um, other um, events and like whether it's speaking, like uh, we're like, we, we really are out and about. Like I know you met my uh, coworker, Noble Noel at uh, Opio Overdose Awareness Vigil, you know, so we're at vigils like that, you know, oftentimes we're asked to speak. Um, at, at different places and so we'll uh, be sharing about our experiences and what we offer it more uh, we have recovery day every september we had about around 700 people 600 people attend our recovery day uh this year and uh at Faneuil hall in september we have it every year so is hope that the one come. that um is that the one that dan schneider came and spoke yes yeah uh, he was incredible and he was so generous mm. with his time um, oh, yeah. And him, I sat down with him, met him. He gave me his card. He was so, so, so gracious and so kind. And um, he just was an incredible person, you know? So, yeah. Hopefully, you can make it. Uh, I don't know if you were there last year, but we'd love to have you there this year, Tony. No, keep me in mind September. for that. I would, right. I would like to talk yeah. about that and, you know, give you 15 minutes. If I could get a microphone, that would be awesome. Uh, <laughs> So no, I, 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 um, Dan, Dan actually was on my show the day before he spoke there. He actually, he came into the studio cause, um, we've known each other for like three years now. Wow. So we, um, I, when I first saw him on the, on the, the pharmacist on the, on TV and it was, uh, very impressive. And then, and then we both spoke in Washington DC a couple of times and, uh, awesome. And uh, he's a tough guy to follow because he's <laughs> talks forever. His enthusiasm is very contagious. He's a great guy. And, um, you know, and so that gets me into the next uh, subject. I understand that tomorrow there's going to be a, a session at the state house. And I know you used the term, I think it was overdose re uh, prevention. Is that how you said it? Yes, overdose uh, prevention center, uh, an act, an act to uh, access uh, treatment. You know where Bill H nineteen eighty one 
or S1242. And, uh, in so that fact, means it's Mayor, in the House. It's, it's in the House and in the Senate. Yeah. So you've got a better chance of getting it coming to a vote. But uh, we, we've been, I've been, you know, preaching this for like three years. And tell, tell the audience about um, a couple of the people that you met that as soon as you suggested it, the yeah. reactions that you got. And yeah, tell no, people, tell people why it's a great idea. That's I, what people need to know. Why is it a good idea? I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, uh, people can recover. And, uh, you know, as long as people are alive, you know, as long as there's breath in the body, there is hope. And so it's very important. We do everything we can to give people uh, a chance to recover. So tomorrow, uh, Marianne Frangoulis is going to be uh, leading this initiative and bringing parents uh, who've lost loved ones to uh, share about their experience of the impact that, uh, you know, losing someone to an opioid overdose has had and uh, to implore the legislators to back this bill. Because what we're looking for is to create a place where we can engage people, you know, where we can connect with people and support them to, to stay alive and also offer a pathway to recovery, you know, and offer access, you know, because, uh, People will hoping to have this staffed by uh, counselors, nurses, recovery coaches, you know, people who are skilled at building relationships. And then when a person decides that, hey, today's the day that I want to access treatment, we don't tell them to come back tomorrow. We help them access treatment that day. So this is what we're looking toward. We're going to be uh, really, it's going to be a way to keep people alive. Also, it's going to, there's, um, it's going to have a huge cost saving to our community because we're spending a lot of money on um, ambulances, ambulances rides, trips to the hospital, you know, fire departments going out to give people Narcan, you know, and then, then people not taking care of their wounds and then having to go into the hospital and developing all kinds of things that can be, avo that could be uh, avoided. What do they say? An ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. So this is what we're trying to do. They have these overdose prevention sites or death prevention sites in um, 14 different countries. Right now, there's a successful one going on in New York City. And Tony, you should see the impact that they're having, not only on keeping people alive, but also on the community. Because I don't know about you, um, I've already found needles in my community. You know, I have two young kids, ages six and nine. And like we like to walk uh, along the train tracks to see the trains go. And on two different occasions, I found needles there, you know, and if an opioid, uh, an overdose, you know, opioid use is rampant. We're not going to deny that it's not there. We'd love to see um, a center. In fact, you then asked me, can you tell me about the experience I had uh, with someone uh, just yesterday? I was uh, going to a recovery center to uh, talk about Bill H-1981, the overdose prevention center uh, bill. And I told somebody about this, somebody who was uh, actually in alcohol recovery. Um, who's, uh, and when I told him what I was doing, I was shocked at his response. He's like, why are you going to be doing this? Why are you going you know, to be wasting people's money? You're going to be spending all, this, all the taxpayers' money? And uh, it just didn't make any sense to me. He was so outraged. And that he just said, well, why don't we just lock everybody up and have, spend more money on um, law enforcement? And it's like, well, isn't that what we've been doing? And how is it working? And I do know this, if nothing changes, nothing changes. So if we have the means to keep people alive for another day, engage them into treatment, you know, support them to reduce the harm. And, uh, you know, why wouldn't we do this? You know, so it just, uh, and also, you know, there are other people. There was, uh, when we had the state hearing, there was one representative who, I won't share the person's name, but he had the same the same perspective and it just and he kept on hopping on well there's too many needles around and uh like and we're like well if we have an overdose prevention center you will not be finding needles in the street because we'll be giving people clean needles that they can use and that they don't have to discard on the street that we have a spot that they can safely discard that and uh, lastly that person i was uh, talking to yesterday said well would you want to have an overdose prevention set uh site in your neighborhood? And I said, yes, I would love one. I'm finding people using, uh, shooting up um, 
in my neighborhood. You know, I, I live in uh, Jamaica Plain, and we had uh, someone using heroin uh, right on, uh, like, right three doors down up the street on somebody's porch and then in the public garden, like, you know. Um, so I would love to have an overdose prevention center and a recovery center in every community, you know, where people can go and, and get the support they need and create more access into uh, recovery. Because yes. recovery is real. Yes. Yeah, it's a great idea. And, and for people that are not familiar, the, they one of the earliest places that had it was Vancouver, yeah. British Columbia. And they they were picking up four or five people a day off the street. And the biggest problem they were having, as well as having people dying, is is the, the first responders were getting to become needed psychiatrists for their, because of all the bodies they were picking up. And it's very emotional and very, very hard on first responders. And so they, they opened four locations. And since they've opened those four locations, no one has ever died of an overdose in one of those locations. That's, that's good, great news. But even further than that, over 70% of them got into recovery because people, and once they come in, people have a chance to talk to them. And now the most important thing is fentanyl strips. If you go in and you already have uh, cocaine or you already have um, some kind of opioid powder or whatever you're taking, and they can test it for fentanyl. And that's critical because if a person's never had fentanyl and they think that they can handle it or something, um, one time, only takes one time to die, you know, and if somebody's been sober for a year or two and they, they relapse and they go back in and they take anything that's got fentanyl in it, either whether it's heroin, cocaine, marijuana, even marijuana, because a, a college right in Massachusetts had 14 overdoses in one weekend that most of the, they all lived, but they had to use Narcan on 14 different students because they were putting fentanyl in marijuana, smoking legal pot and, and having fentanyl in it. And, um, and I, I spoke to one of the parents happened to call me and he, he didn't even know what Narcan was. He thought his son was going away to college and this, the guy lives out of state. And I actually told him about the school and his, he sent his son up here thinking, you know, and he was a senior. He'd been there three and a half years now. And then he got, got involved with the group that, that wanted to get high and they were celebrating that their senior year and senior party, it was right around New Year's or Christmas time. And, uh, you know, they had a place where they could have tested stuff to see whether it was dangerous or not, you know. Uh, I think that's huge. I think in, in Toronto, they have a half a dozen uh, places as well. And again, it's been very successful. Not only gets them off the street, it keeps them from dying. And, you know, people shooting up in the back alley, you know, they don't have anybody hanging around. They can call 911 if they if they OD. You know, this is a this is a problem, you know, and they don't have anybody testing their drugs to see how potent they are. That's another big problem. You know, so another thing I didn't know about till too long ago that there's a, a hotline you can call never use alone. You know, so that you can call and uh, get some support and then you can tell them where you are. And if you don't not respond, they could send rescue to your location. Uh, it was something I didn't find out till not too long ago exists. You know, not everybody That's... can make it um, to uh, a place where they can get support. So uh, and oftentimes people use alone in, in, in secret, you know, um, so it just it's a it's just a resource for those who uh you know, one to build in a safety measure. Yeah. Now, did you see the piece on 60 Minutes a couple of weeks ago about the, the man who was putting a transmitters inside somebody's brain regarding? Uh, so this piece, this is the same gentleman who put together this, the idea of a transmitter for Parkinson's disease. And, and in these studies of the brain, they, they've found that people who have severe addiction problems on opioids in particular, that's what they were working on. So everybody knows opioids. So that's 
heroin and opioids are in the same class. They're pretty much the same drug. Um, one's synthetic and one's natural. That's the major difference, but it's the same uh, formula. Um, and they found that the, the brain is actually altered. And it, what it really does is gives credence to the fact that somebody who has addiction problems, um, it is, it is a, it, it's a sickness. You know, it's, it is something in, in this one person that they had was, um, was sh shooting up four times a day and, and he couldn't stop. He tried multiple times to stop, couldn't stop. And they put one of these things in his brain to alter his, his, um, his brain. And where this, this part of the brain is the part that thrives for opioids. And, and I think you're going to see it for people who have problems with sugar. We have a pretty overweight society and a lot of people have addiction to sugar, you know, and it changes the brain. Once it gets, it gets the thing going, it actually changes the cells in your brain and you've got to reverse that or you've got to stop it. You know, um, it was very, quite interesting. If anybody out there want to <clears throat> go back three weeks, two weeks or three weeks, you can watch this episode. And I think it, very educational to see how the brain changes and so how how why people with addiction have such a difficult time stopping it robs the brain you know and anybody who's smoking it's got the same problem it's you know the nicotine is affects that part of your brain so that you just you know you have a sandwich bell goes off you light a cigarette phone rings you light a cigarette you know you get in the car you light a cigarette because you know you know, there's all these little triggers that, that start it, you know, sitting down to watch TV, you have a cigarette, you know, so, and it still kills 400,000 people a year. So they, it's, um, there are uh, a few countries now that are looking at um, changing the, the laws so that, you know, when you, you don't, you're not allowed to smoke when you're 21 or 25, they're going to change it so that as the oldest generation dies off, the younger generation is going to be illegal to smoke a cigarette. I, I think that's quite an interesting thing that's also coming out. Um, I think places, places like like Singapore, you know, you can't even buy a sick pack of cigarettes. Bring them in from out of the country, but you better bring in only one pack because that's all you're allowed to have. And if you're there for more than three days, you're done. <laughs> you better go to Malaysia and buy your cigarettes or something. You know, um, so what would you say if if um, if you were a parent and you now that you are a parent, what age group would you start having uh, your parent? The parents should start talking to their kids. Well, I don't know what about other parents, Tony, and I support people with self determination, but I've been starting early. You know, um, I've been bringing to my son. And my daughter to AA meetings since I, I'd wheel them there, you know, and then now on Zoom, you know, they're part of, uh, you know, Fiona and Jack are uh, like, I they're part of like, they uh, people in my home group know it, uh, know them. And so we start early and I really value prevention and also more. We do a lot of work with prevention and we're part of different coalitions. And so like one of the things like I try with our kids is to help them see that they can be a champion of prevention. Like, you know, like my wife and I are both in long successful long-term addiction recovery. Uh, we both have 16 years of abstinence from alcohol and other drugs. And yet we tell our kids, like, you know, you can be the prince or the princess of prevention. And really to uh, think about this, because uh, we've both done the, the research that our lives uh, are better without alcohol and other drugs and other substances like cigarettes. Um, so we're trying to help our children and uh, to not pick up that first suck of drugs because uh, one day we're we're on it. We were trying to go to the airport last summer for a trip that turned out not to happen. But we saw a person got on the train and they were not well. Uh, and they were holding a drink or holding a bottle and they were yelling at everybody. And I actually got scared. Um, I got up and stood between my son and my daughter and the person, you know, and I didn't know what was going to happen. 
I just prayed, please help that person get off the train, help them, help them. Cause I didn't know if he, what he was going to do next. And they were scaring the children. So after he got off that train, I said to my kids, when that guy picked up his first drug, do you think he had any idea where that drug would take him? Would it bring him here? And, uh, and so we had a conversation about that. It's like, we don't know where that first drink, that first other, other type of substance will take us. So we, uh, so I've been really trying to instill in these kids to have a, to be aware of this stuff. And cause we have it on, on all throughout our family and that for them to tap into their purpose and to have a reason why they don't want to pick up that first drug. And so they talk about in prevention, delay, 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 because the brain is not fully developed, I think, to the age of 25. So we want to carry that message that, you know, there are other things to do and that there are a lot of people out there who are not using. We want to send that positive message is that you can have fun without using substances. And uh, there are people who are living lives without using alcohol and other drugs. So we're trying to instill this in this kid. So we start early. I don't know what other families do, but, you know, we we've had uh, these conversations. We keep on revisiting it. So prevention is very important to my family. And it's also important to more as well. We do work with these different coalitions and uh, and we have uh, people speak uh, and continue to do the work. And we're involved with supporting grants and uh, helping parents. Like we have a parent project right now to help with uh, people, parents advocacy and, and skill building. So um, we offer a lot of different things at more. So for me, if you ask me, uh, when to start talking to our kids about prevention, I say it's never too early to start, but uh, that's just me. What do you think, Tony? Well, I don't know. I was going to say, I, I was, I was showing the movie, if only, I don't, I don't know if you've seen that. Um, it's something that Jim Wahlberg put together about five, six years ago. And I used to show it at high schools and, um, and I wanted to show it, and I thought this one particular high school I knew had a problem with some kids in the eighth grade, and I would get I got a lot of pushback from the principal, that saying that they're too young, so forth, and and I ironically, um, a month after I got the pushback from that principal, um, they had a huge problem with a half a dozen kids who were smuggling in little nips in their pockets and stuff, and in, in and there was a half a dozen of them that got drunk in school, you know, and, and they were all in the eighth grade, yeah. you well, know. I so started my like, use early. So I, I uh, well, wrote, wrote, rehearsed with our kids. What are you going to do if someone offers you something like, you know, and then, and we role play it, you know, and, uh, you know, tell kids, hey, I ain't got time to do this. I have other, I have dreams and goals, you know, it's like, this is, I don't need to do this to be cool. Um, Cause it's, it's a, uh, everybody's going to be offered drugs at, at one point or another. I mean, alcohol is a drug. So it's, uh, I don't know any human being who's not offered some type of drug at some point. So, um, and I like to support well, You get brainwashed to, on TV yeah. with the beer yeah. commercials. Exactly. They don't play the you tape know. through that. You know, they don't show people going to detoxes. They don't show people, you know, ruining lives, you know, taking other people out. Um, so it's, in, in, it's important, you know, when people also, before they start forming their peer groups, to be able to develop the skills, you know, to be able to say no. And, you know, and especially now with, I've already talked to the kids about fentanyl. Do you ever take any, any type of pill that someone's offered you? You know, in fact, on the Cape, some, this uh, kid brought uh, some brownies to school last week that they didn't, they didn't know what was in the brownies. And uh, it actually had marijuana in it and it had a really negative impact on a bunch of kids, you know? So this was middle school. Yeah. Well, I was trying to say, who made those brownies? I want to know. Did Probably a dispensary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they got, I mean, but that's another subject. But um, so we're all about at more prevention, treatment, recovery, harm reduction, you know, supporting. Uh, we really, it's important for us to organize people and uh, help people advocate to like do things that's going to be conducive to people's recovery and uh, stop unhelpful practices from happening. You know, like we talked about the alcohol advertising. Um, also to give people uh, the tools they need, you know, and uh, supports to be able to create opportunities, access. Like we did a lot of work around quarter reform, you know, so like you don't want to, like when I was 18 years old, I was in a car and somebody um, destroyed some property. I got charged uh, with malicious destruction of property. I was just an, a bystander. Like when I was 18 years old, like should that be on my record forever? You know, so we've done stuff where we can um, have people 
be able to get their quarry removed because it affects their housing, affects their job employment. And a lot of people, you know, as a result of their addiction, you know, created crimes and like then people find recovery, you know. Um, so we've done a lot of work to, uh, you know, the misdemeanor can be taken off their record after three years and certain felonies after seven, you know. So we really at more really do our best to try to do things to, you know, help people recover and uh, perform, pu pu pursue legislation that's going to support recovery. We are uh, working on a 51A uh, bill where uh, an act to preserve families that uh, we're getting a lot of traction with. Like, can you imagine, Tony, a, a mother who is on medication-assisted recovery, you know, like methadone, um, is compliant with all their treatment and uh, doing a great job in their recovery, not using other drugs. They deliver birth to their child in the department and files a 51A on them. I mean, how traumatic is that? So this is something, we're the only state in the country that's doing this. So we're working on, we are, we're doing, doing a lot of work at Moore with also other people in the community to, uh, to have this legislation be amended, you know, so that it's not an automatic. It's almost, it's almost like you got to give birth to the child in Connecticut or somewhere else because you're on, a lot of women are on Suboxone. Yeah. And that's that's just what happens, you know. It's like a, um, that sort of thing is just, you know, that that law's got to really be changed. Yeah. But I understand it if somebody's on heavy heroin or something and the baby's that's born. Yeah, that's yeah. different. You know, but so, like, and we want if uh, all pathways of recovery, we want to celebrate. And if it's a vile pathway of recovery, let's not punish people. You know, because um, different things work for different. Um, different people, you know, so absolutely support people in their, in their process of change for their health and wellness, striving to reach their, their, their full potential. So, so how does somebody get a hold of more? Well, there's different that, ways. That, uh, we can, we have a website. People can uh, like you access this, Tony, you get on the phone. How did you do it? You picked up the phone, you call more. Did you get a, did you get a response? I did. You did. So can you, um, so could you give out the, the email address that, that, um, that people should contact? Uh, we have a wonderful website, Tony. You know, uh, I'd like for people to go to our website first, uh, more-recovery.org, yes. uh, or you can uh, Google more recovery Massachusetts, you know, um, and... Uh, it's M-O-A-R for those people. M -O -A -R. It's, it's not M-O-R-E, it's M-O-A-R. Thank you. Um, and you could join on our website. You can join us. Um, you know, I'll even give out my phone number. People can call, um, you know, uh, or you can call the office, you know, or you can send an email. Um, so uh, website um, is a great way of accident, but I don't know if it's okay to do, but I'll give my phone number out. What do you think, Tony? That's fine. Idea, bad idea. Okay. Nope. <laughs> it's uh, my personal phone number, 508-971-5421. And uh, our office is located um, on uh, in Chauncey Street in Boston, Mass. So, uh, one hundred five Chauncey Street. One hundred five Chauncey Street. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Four six. Well, Scott, we want to thank you for taking up your time, and I know you had to rearrange a, an appointment that you had earlier that to to take the time for us today. Uh, very appreciated. Well, appreciate yeah. what you do, and you're worth it. And if I could be of any support to uh, anybody, anybody knows, you can reach out. You know, I would be happy to be a resource broker to uh, connect people with uh, whether it's mental health recovery, Maybe. addiction recovery, treat, uh, uh, trauma recovery. Um, I'd be happy to uh, you know connect people to different places and uh, get you involved. So thank you so much, to, uh, Tony, for the work that you do. Uh, I really appreciate you. And recovery is okay. real, everybody. Thank you. All righty, and then. This is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. And we've been talking to Scott Francis, and he is um, very active in keeping people sober and helping people out. And I thank him again. Until next time. Vacuum City in Plymouth is your full-service sales and repair station, as well as the top local distributor of Melee and Bissell commercial and home cleaning products. Don't miss out on the Uncle Tony special exclusively for WMEX listeners. Get the Little Hercules vacuum for free when you purchase the 8-pound upright. 
Go to vacuum-city.com or call 508-746-0721 Monday through Friday between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Make sure you tell them Uncle Tony sent you. Call Vacuum City at 508-746-0721. 